Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited, where we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Alexius Arctos for his amazing sound engineering and editing work, and Raphael Crooks for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. This case takes us back to World War II to cover the life of a German soldier. For people who aren't major war buffs, it might be confusing to hear Benjamin and I discussing the conflict that occurred between the Germans and the Russians in World War II. World War II is most commonly spoken about as being a conflict between Germany and Japan against England and America, but to understand the backstory of the theatre of war known as the Eastern Front, which was the Russian-German conflict, we need to go even further back to World War I. The history of the wars is extremely complex, and this is a very basic and simplistic run-through, but it is important to have an idea of the events and emotions that were at play at the time to really understand this case. During the First World War, Germany was the leader of a group of countries called the Central Powers, which comprised Italy, Austria, Hungary and Germany. The opposing forces, or the Allied powers as they were known, were made up largely of Russia, France and Britain. Italy swapped sides and joined the Allied powers in 1915. As we know, Germany and its allies were defeated in World War I, but both Russia and Germany were unhappy about the outcome of the war. Russia was unhappy because on the 3rd of March 1918, Russia and Germany hammered out a peace treaty called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. They did this because the fighting between the two countries was at a stalemate and Russia was on the brink of collapse due to the financial strain of supporting its war effort. As part of the treaty, Russia effectively handed the three Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia to Germany and the province of Kars to the Ottoman Empire as payment for peace. Russia also recognised Ukraine's declaration of independence. Now, Russia signed the treaty because financially it had no choice, but it wasn't happy about it, as the concessions cost it dearly. Now, Germany, for its part, was unhappy about the outcome of World War I because, well, firstly, they lost. But when the British, Russian, French and Italian forces defeated the Central Powers, Germany was required to sign the Treaty of Versailles upon their defeat. Now, this treaty forced Germany to pay crippling reparations to Britain and France. Germany was also required to give up 13% of its land and tariffs were placed on products made in Germany, making it almost impossible for Germany to pay the reparations required. Many historians agree that these measures were much too harsh and created the perfect bed for the Nazi party to grow in. Adolf Hitler took advantage of the resentment and anger of the German people at the predicament they found themselves in, blaming their current problems on the Jews and claiming that they were the cause of all the financial hardship in the country. Hitler whipped his country into a nationalistic fervour, promising them a golden age of great wealth, prosperity and land for all. Because of this, the Nazi party rose in power and Hitler turned his attention to war in order to be able to keep his promises. So that brings us up to the Second World War, 
And in August of 1939, Russia and Germany signed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which ostensibly was a non-aggression pact between the two countries. However, they had a secret protocol between both parties with the goal of returning Central Europe to the state it was in before World War I. So this meant that, among other things, the Baltic states that had been handed over by Russia would be returned to Russian control as per their secret agreement if everything went to plan. So both Germany and Russia invaded Poland and Russia occupied and illegally annexed the three Baltic states, thereby regaining power of them. Now technically, this should have been okay as far as Hitler was concerned because of their secret agreement. But what Russia hadn't realised was that Hitler was actually working under his own agenda of attacking Russia again. Hitler had no desire for peace with Russia, and he then used Russia's illegal occupation of the Baltic states as an excuse to invalidate the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, saying Russia had violated Germany's understanding of the pact. And so the two countries found themselves back at war with each other again. So on the 22nd of June 1941, Operation Barbarossa was launched and effectively Germany invaded the Soviet Union. And that pretty much sets the background for today's episode as we uncover Benjamin's memories of life as a tank commander. Today's episode is remarkable. We've spoken frequently about the trauma that can be associated with past lives. But what if you have a dark past life? What if, along with the usual feelings of confusion and pain at the memories, you also have to live with the memories of hurting other people? Finding accounts of dark lives are often difficult because people feel a sense of shame and guilt and the question arises about responsibility. Should you be held responsible and considered guilty for the actions of a past life? Today's guest, Benjamin has very kindly agreed to share his memories of life as an SS officer. I think it's pretty common knowledge that the SS were Hitler's elite soldiers and they were notorious for their brutality and efficient ruthlessness. So with that in mind, I would like to warn my listeners that some of Benjamin's account is very dark and therefore this episode may not be appropriate for all of our listeners. But I will say this isn't an episode of despair. Rather, it's a message of forgiveness, acceptance and redemption, and it speaks of the resilience of the soul to learn from experiences and rise above our darkest moments. So I do hope you can join me today to listen to Benjamin's account, as I think it's an important episode, and I'd like to thank Benjamin very much for his bravery in sharing his story. I'd like to welcome Benjamin to the show today. Benjamin has an incredible story that is everything you really want to hear in a story, really. It's heartbreaking, it's inspirational, it's moving. Thank you for coming on the show, Ben. I really appreciate it. Hello, Marilyn. Thank you for having me. I've been actually hoping to do your story for a while because it's a very, very fascinating story. So you started off with sort of the classic problems of when you were a little child, you had night terrors. Is that right? Yes, I did, actually. I mean, I guess if you asked me at the time, I would have said everybody had those, but it puzzled my parents, especially since my siblings didn't go through any of that. My story became of interest to me personally when I was older and when I started to have those flashbacks when I was about 24, 25 years of age. 
I guess you could say when I was younger, I probably also had these images in my head, but they were not as vivid and I just brushed them aside completely. It's only when I started to experience those extremely intense flashbacks that I I started to wonder what was happening to me and what started off as a small dive into myself turned out to be a very long story that uh, leads me today to talk about this, what happened to me basically. I know, it's it's quite fascinating. So to cover your background a little bit, so you're Mm. a French-British man. Absolutely. Born and, and raised in France, but my mother is English. And uh, you didn't really have much to do with reincarnation when you were young? Your family weren't really? No. I mean, I was raised a Christian, but in a non-very practicing family. I never heard of reincarnation stories before. I Obviously, I knew the word didn't appear on my radar. For me, it was some distant Eastern philosophy slash belief. I just never heard any stories related to that. And even when when I started to have my flashbacks, I didn't know that reincarnation existed. I didn't know that there was people from all walks of life who were experiencing uh, the same thing. For me, it just didn't exist. I had no, let's say, preconceived ideas about it. It just was not on my radar at all. And so you, as you grew up into a young man, you became a bit of a world traveler and you sort of were very curious and wanted to see the world a bit. And you started to travel a bit, didn't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I finished high school very early. I just turned 17. And straight away, I wanted to travel. So I went to Germany, then I went to Canada, obviously, uh, a little bit everywhere in Europe, but those places where I went the most. And then six years ago, I moved to Asia, and I've been happily living in China ever since. So it was while you were in China, actually, that you really started to have major problems with your memories, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. This is where it began. It went from, actually very quickly, it went from nothing to something that was happening every day. I would probably, I mean, it's difficult for me to understand exactly why it started. All I know is that around the same time, my grandfather, whom I was very close with, passed away sadly. And whether or not it's related, I do believe so, probably because it put me under quite a lot of stress. And obviously, being so far away from my family, it was a little bit difficult to maybe find some closure. But anyway, the way it went for me was in just everyday situations. I wasn't meditating. I wasn't doing anything, especially to trigger images. But I would be, for instance, walking in the streets and my mind wandering. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm taking from one reality to another. And I would have usually these very short scenes, a few seconds maximum, but were very loaded with a lot of information, whether first of all, visual, but also information emotional. I know if I'm stressed, I could understand what was going on around me. I knew vaguely where I was. I knew vaguely who the men around me, how they were related to me. Sometimes situational information, for instance. One of the ones that really shocked me, I was walking in a street and all of a sudden I wasn't in the street where I was. I was in a destroyed city and we were walking, trying to take cover from the, the sides of the building. Buildings, and instantly I knew that I was leading the men around me and it was a war zone. And I knew that the biggest danger was from the windows in the buildings across the street, because if somebody was to shoot at us, it would come from there. And I would have those scenes, very random, always the same theme, always war related, always from the situation of, of an officer. And they would start to go from a few times per month to a few times per week to every day to multiple times a day. And they were obviously very distressing because these were not happy scenes at all. That's very, very difficult to deal with, isn't it? And there's a lot of emotional angst that comes with the memories, isn't there? Absolutely. Especially well, for two reasons. A, I've never been in a conflict, never been in the army. And the emotions that I experienced were extremely strong, like the fear of death, the fear of death of the people around you. It's going to sound surprising to you, but also the fear of failure. There's a mission, you need to accomplish it. These are things I experienced very vividly. And also the fact that I just didn't know what was happening to me. 
my first idea, which lasted quite a long time, was I, I was convinced that I was losing it, to be honest. The only explanation I could find vaguely was, I think I'm becoming, I don't know, schizophrenic. I, I have no training in those things, but that's what popped into my head. I said, okay, I'm losing grip with reality. And obviously, there was nothing I could do to stop it, whether I was trying to keep busy, whether I was trying sometimes to just drink it away, nothing worked. Luckily, I'm not a drinker, so those attempts didn't, didn't last very long. Yeah, so in the back of my mind, it was always there. It brought a lot of stress into my life every day. And it's actually one day, uh, very randomly, I watched a documentary where a French journalist, and I will uh, keep that story on, uh, on the table because the name of this journalist will pop again in the story. His name was Stéphane Alix, and he used to be a war reporter that decided to investigate, I would say, fringe subjects, especially from French perspective. And he did one on reincarnation. And he went to see people who experienced this story. And one of them was James Leninger. All right. Surprisingly, the case of James mm. Leninger resonated with me, not so much because of his war memories, because for some reason, it, I didn't connect those with what I was experiencing, but the night terrors he had as a kid. Because then I remembered that my night terrors, who were so often and always the same theme, were, were quite similar to his, actually. You know, like experiencing a scene over and over and over again as a kid, that makes no sense. In my case, my night terrors were, I was trapped essentially in a metal box. That's how I would describe it as a kid. I was trapped in a metal box. I can't get out and I'm crying and I'm kicking, but there's no way for me to get out. And I also had associated phobias. For instance, I hated elevators. I hated to be trapped in an elevator as a kid. And so this was my first brush with the idea of reincarnation. And this is something that actually happens to people regardless of their belief system or regardless of where they come from. So with your uh, night terrors, did you start to get any idea what war you were in or who you were at the time? Um, surprisingly, I didn't connect those, uh, how I remembered my night terrors to the daily flashes I was having at the time. I, I figured maybe this is somebody dying in a cell because I'm trapped in a box which I couldn't explain. The way it went is actually, at the time I was back in France for a few months and I went to see a psychiatrist actually and we did an assessment and he said, well, you are not schizophrenic, you're obviously very stressed, but, and he kindly referred to me to a therapist that is, as he said in his words, specialized in these kind of cases. And this is how I ended up meeting clinical psychologists who actually worked with people who have past life memories because he had past life memories as well. Yeah, he used to be an accountant, actually, uh, and he went through this story that changed his belief system, and he decided to become a, a therapist, and he went down the official route, and he became a clinical psychologist, so he, that's how we started to, let's say, open up to the idea that um, those memories that I had, they were probably memories of, of a past life, and this is where everything unlocked, this is where I connected everything, this is where I knew that I probably remembered the life of a German officer, but no more details, just a German officer, probably fighting in Russia, I mean, Soviet Union at the time. That was all I had because the, the details I had were very scarce, just had these very clear images and information I couldn't explain. Which is really interesting when you look at your actual family history, because you said that you didn't get the memories really sort of happening until after your grandfather died. And your grandfather was That's actually right. very much connected on the other side of the war, wasn't he? Absolutely. He was. He was a D-Day veteran. He was a British soldier. And uh, actually, he... So as I said, he stormed the beach on D-Day and I was born the 6th of June, which is a funny twist. <laughs> and also me and him had a, a shared passion for genealogy. So we spent a lot of time together actually digging into the archives together to uncover the British side of our family. Mm -hmm. And we went actually very deep. So, I, you know, in the back of my mind, I always loved saying maybe when he passed away, he decided to give me another hand to another bit of help to uncover some lost links, lost connections to the past. I entertained this idea, absolutely. I don't think this is something I would have been able to 
to talk to him with when he was alive because uh, well he experienced some things he had uh, four NDEs but we never talked about these kind of topics together oh wow he had four NDEs was that during the war or? yeah no 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 uh, later in his life uh, he had um, he was he died very old he was 91 and he, he went through uh, quite a few extremely intensive surgeries. And uh, in a few of those, he actually had NDEs, plus one that happened when he was not under anesthesia or anything. He was just in his hospital bed. And for some reason, he experienced that again. So that gave him an interesting outlook on life, that's for sure. Later in his life, he was more open to these things. It would open your mind a lot. And actually, you, oh, might, be very, you may be very right, because perhaps when he crossed over, because you mm-hmm. and I both believe in reincarnation, he sort of felt, well, I need to help you with your memories. Because if you had night terrors as a child and you still had little flashbacks all through your life, it seems to me that your memories were trying to surface. I mean, I'm not saying I was pushing them away, but I was just not dealing with them at all. For me, it was something happening to me. I was not fully convinced. It took me a while to really accept the fact for a while, I was just convinced that it's just something I have. I'm not going to do anything with it. Uh, I'm a quite rational person. Of course, I'm open to a lot of things, but I wasn't actually pursuing And Actually, that's something I usually say to people when I talk about my story. I wasn't actually actively trying to uncover anything. I was literally trying to deal with my problem. My problem was I was having those visions every day, which were waiting down on me. All right, what's the next step to deal with it? Let's go see a therapist. Okay, no, that's not enough. I need to go even further. So one day I did a regression therapy and okay, I, I did this. I kept going on forward, forward, forward until one day I, yeah, I, I ended up quite far in this, uh, in this search. Well, I'm glad you did take that path, although I sort of usually um, say to people, be careful with regression therapy. I think it can be extremely helpful with regarding getting I, tapping past life memories. I think there's two things you need to keep in mind. Do you really need it? And B, is the therapist you're going to do it with easy of, with the right intentions? And does he have the right training? Because I've done regression therapy with two therapists. The clinical psychologist I mentioned is the second person I did it with. The first one was somebody I found online that did this uh, regression hypnosis. And it did yield some results, but I didn't feel a lot of support. And that could have been very destructive if I didn't actually work also with a clinical psychologist on the side that also made me do regression therapy to, in his words, to try to fix the mess that she did by not closing the lid, essentially. So it's, it's a very powerful tool, but you need to use it very wisely because you might not like what you see. And I, I tell from experience, you probably, like, unless you, you see some very random things, if you, like me, are unlucky enough to have memories of a dark life, you probably won't like what you see. And it takes a lot of work and effort and support from the people around you to get your footing when you are confronted to death, especially when you give death to others, as opposed to a peaceful life, which <laughs> I wish on everyone, but it might not be what you see. Yeah, that's actually a really good point to make. And that's why whenever we see people who say, oh, I want to go and get my regression done because I want to see my past life. Unfortunately, it got that kind of a reputation of being something like a bit of a parlor trick because of the 50s when people really got into regression. But it's actually not really a wise thing to do. I think the reason we don't remember is we're not supposed to. There is a good reason, yeah. Unless, like, with you. like yourself, you obviously felt a sense of lack of closure from that life or that you had to deal with the emotions of it. It's given that yours were very emotional experiences. Yeah, they were. They were. We can, we can dive a little bit more into what I saw when I did those regression and all the memories I had associated so we can start to paint a picture of who I was before. It's uh, essentially imagine, I'm a, I mean, I'm a very peaceful person today, absolutely nonviolent, uh, very open to others. And all of a sudden, the, I start to remember the life of a man who lived a, a rough life. 
who was governed by principles of uh, keeping your body and your mind aligned so that you can be a good soldier, a good officer in a very violent war. Because my first regression hypnosis that I did, I, I was taken straight to how I died. And how I died, I was in a, in a German tank, a Panzer. And uh, it was the last day, actually, of my life. And I remembered very clearly that I was very frustrated because they had asked me to stop the advance of my unit. I knew we were on the offensive. They asked me to stop the advance of my unit and basically draw a defensive line. And facing east because it was the morning and I could see the, the sunlight coming straight in front of me. So we were facing east. And what worried me, and it was crystal clear in my mind, was that I was worried because I knew that the Russians that we were facing, the Soviets, it was hard for them to coordinate against a moving unit that is attacking. But if all of a sudden you stop, they can pinpoint where you are, they can coordinate and launch a counteroffensive, which was really bothering me a lot because I didn't want to be forced to hold the offensive and defend. But anyway, this is what happened. And sure enough, the, the next scene I see is the, the counteroffensive from the Soviets must have happened because I'm in my tank and we are hit by one round that comes from the right, a little bit forward, kills one of the crew member. Everybody is deaf, including me. Like You just can't hear anything after the explosion. And I want to reply, reply, as in I want my crew to start fighting back. But then I see on my right, somebody I know who is my loader, as in the person who's supposed to put the rounds in the cannon of the tank. And I see him yelling hysterically. And then I'm taken by this fear of this just extremely strong feeling of this is it. Like, this is over. I know there's going to be a second shot because obviously the tank is not moving. It's going to be a second shot and this is going to be the end. And sure enough, liberating me, I, uh, there is a, a second round that I'm vaguely aware of it, it exploding right on my on my right side on the turret, very vaguely aware. And straight away, I'm taken as if I'm being ripped out of this tank and I'm seeing the tank that is burning from the front elevated, which didn't bother me, but it would have been literally in the air because it was maybe three, four meters high, about 10 meters back, uh, 10 meters in front of the tank. And I'm watching this and I start to realize that I, I mean, it took me a while, but essentially I was dead and it was instant. There was no pain. There was no peacefully leaving the body. No, I was, this explosion ripped me out of my body. I was now watching the destroyed tank. And that was just the beginning of a very long series of memories that I had of after I died, which also helped me identify who I was. This is like to, when we talk about how powerful a regression can be, this is the very first scene I saw in this regression. It was extremely precise, as I said, like I, I knew everything that was going on around me. And how terrifying to come out of that regression and see that memory. I mean, it's a terrifying memory. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole session was quite long and I, I recorded everything. And I went on to essentially see what happened after I died. I remember that there was one man that was being told that I died. And I was around him trying to explain to him, I'm still here, I'm still here, but he couldn't hear me. And I knew instinctively this guy's name was Georg. And it was very important to me, but he was not an officer by any means. And uh, actually, later on, I found out that when I died, my previous life, my brother named Georg was in the same unit. And he was told a few maybe minutes after I died that I had been killed. And this is probably the scene that I saw, you know, in those memories that my brother was there. And I went on to basically follow my unit for several days. And, and this is where I saw a very large battle, very odd. As in like the Germans, we like to engage the enemy from a long distance because then that gave us protection. We had better guns and better tanks. So you wanted as much distance between you and the enemy. And all of a sudden I see this crazy battle, which for a while I actually thought it was kind of a fantasy vision because I was seeing tanks engage each other a very short distance in burning fields, so much burning 
vehicles that you have, when a tank is burning, it makes like a ring of fire. So you have a black area, round area around the tank. And there was so much smoke that the smoke would rise and then stabilize and make this kind of seeding of smoke all around the battlefield of burning tanks, just like a hellish vision. which actually turned out to have really happened four days after I died, which was called the Battle of Proshorovka. And it's known to be one of the largest tank battles of probably history, where you had very large amount of tanks, both from the Germans and the Soviets, that decided to advance unknowingly into each other and ensued a very large battle, which uh, is still today remembered as one of the largest of the war. It must have been like watching hell unfolding before you, really. It was this feeling of helplessness is one of the strongest feelings I've experienced when uh, revisiting my memories. So you also had quite a a unique experience as well, because the moment you realized you were dead, you also noticed other people around you, didn't you? Like other people who died. Yes, definitely. That's quite unusual. You don't normally hear that really described. Yes, I guess that's allow me to speak this way. The perks of dying on a battlefield, which is you're rarely the, the first one to die. Mm. Oh, you're really the only one to die. I, I slipped my tongue because I remember this is something that really puzzled me after I died. I was astonished that I died first. It was this idea of I died first. I was the first to die. And as an officer, I guess your idea is you want to lead your men as long as possible. I wanted to go back. What I remember from seeing these other, let's call them souls on the battlefield that had died is that they were in various states of awareness. Some of them probably didn't know they were dead. Like um, it's almost you could see some trying to literally pull their body backup some of them were just like me witnessing did not interact with each other at all but some of them were aware of each other some of them were not that's what i remember like maybe about a dozen times i would have noticed other souls who were there and, that uh, actually ties in with your yeah. own experience, though, because you were saying that when you first were hit and therefore killed, that you at first didn't understand that no. that had happened to you as well. No, and I don't know how long it took me to realize. I don't even know if I fully realized until the end, because those emotions were still very much there. I don't know how long it took. That's why I, <laughs> I, I value the gift of uh, dying peacefully in your bed when you're all surrounded by your family. I guess that's the right way to go, <laughs> because probably you know right away. When the death is violent, it's instantaneous, really. I mean, in my case, it was really going from you're alive and aside from being deaf, you're still valid. You have your two arms, two legs, uh, you can see, you can talk, to uh, being blown to bits and as a body, you don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're ripped away from the situation and you're all of a sudden, you see things from a different perspective. But it took me a while to really realize I'm dead. This is over. There's no going back. And now you're here and there's no blueprint for what you're supposed to do. I just stuck around like this. You don't know what to do. I just wanted to be with my men. So this is what happened. You know, when people talk about ghosts and things and how can you have reincarnation and have ghosts, I think actually what might happen is that for some people, it's not necessarily just a straight and easy transition that doesn't happen because you're not given the chance to prepare perhaps, or you're just not ready or you feel still tied to the earth perhaps with the things that are going on. Yes, I've taken an interest actually on the Tibetan tradition of how they accompany somebody who died, where they will, for 40 days, they will recite the same words over and over. I think it's called the Bardo Todol, where they go, you're dead, this is over, you need to go. Because I, I guess you, as if you're sticking around, you would be aware of people talking to you and maybe you need an invitation. But yeah, in my case, there was just nothing else to do. You're just there and you stay. The situation evolved a little bit. You lose connection with what's going on around you. It takes a while. Obviously, for me, I would say more than four days because I could see the battle raging and then the battle stopped. 
and this is where I stayed in those fields. That's very clear in my head. I just stayed there. But you, you lose the connection with what is around you. I like dissolve. I don't know how, it's very hard to put words into it, but you lose the connection with what is happening into like these dimensions, I would say. So in a way, it's a little bit like we experience on this side with the memories, how they'll fade usually around five years of age. In the same way, when you were on the other side, you started to lose the connections to the life that you had in a way. So so did you get that feeling of going to be somewhere else or did you just... So you stayed no, on the field until you reincarnated? A very long time, uh, because what was really, I don't know if that makes sense, but like an outwards experience, as in you're experiencing what's happening around you, but you yourself, it's not an experience focused on yourself, and slowly the experience moved to less and less what happens around you, and it's a very lonely experience. I mean, I started to be haunted, essentially, by what I had done in my life, and uh, I guess some people call it a life review. I didn't feel it as if I was being judged. I just felt like I was being hit by wave after wave after wave of revisiting the things I have done in this life. And always from a different perspective, as in you, I guess it's a very purging experience to be taken one million times to experience. I'm going to give you a very precise example. I have a a memory of executing someone. I remember the scene very clearly. We had captured a relatively young person, obviously not a, a soldier. In my mind, we called him a partisan which is essentially the non-regular local resistant who would, in that case, this guy, we caught him laying a, a bomb in a roadside ditch. That's how he was captured and brought to us. I guess we must have probably somebody uh, in, in my staff must have decided that he had no information, no more information to give. So we were going to, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry, I'm going to speak the way I remember it, but we were going to process him. It's very cold, but that was it. And it was more in annoyance than anything else. So we asked him to basically dig his own grave and he was sobbing a lot. And after a while, you know, we just fed up. So we tied his hand in his back. I asked for a rifle and I gave a shot. I was maybe five meters behind him, maybe closer. And I shot him in the back of the head, slightly offset to the right. And he, he fell down, like he twitched, fell down in the tomb. And that was it. I, I moved on. And what would have been a relatively non-emotional thing, it was just what we did and how we did it at the time. Revisited countless, countless, countless times. And I think a, a million is probably an understatement of going back to experience it from a third, um, third party perspective and really dive into why I did it, how I felt, how it affected others around me. And every time there was a realization about this scene, like scrapping this layer of lies that you put onto yourself so that you're able to do those un- like ungodly things. Once, as soon as you reveal one truth, you go back again to verify, visit another one. And this went on for a lot of things that I did in this life. Because now I think it's a good idea to explain who I was in this past life and how I found it. That's going to give you more perspective about those memories that I carry. So essentially, during this regression, I also saw a lot of visual details, including the medals and the uniforms I was wearing. And one that turned out to be a key was on my left collar, I saw a rank insignia that I couldn't identify. But I knew it was a black square with, at first, three white dots in diagonal which later on became four white dots arranged in a square inside this black patch. And I remember also on my sternum that I had a a red and white band, like a diagonal that was really uh, on my uh, solar plexus. And so like I a bandolier what, kind of thing? A very small one. It's, it's actually a, a German medal called the Iron Cross. It was given to everybody. Trivia moment because Hitler got it. So he decided that uh, it was going to be the go-to medal. He got in the First World War. So that became a big thing in uh, Nazi Germany. With this information, I remember chatting with my father as soon as I, I did this regression uh, hypnosis. And he said, well, that, that those are SS ranks. 
and uh, didn't occur to me at all, like this idea of FNS and stuff. I mean, I, I basically knew nothing about it. I knew vaguely that, I mean, I knew what the SS was, but I, I didn't know so much about it. And my father said, yeah, those are SS officer ranks. And sure enough, they were, and they are actually in succession, as in the first one is Hauptsturmführer, which is essentially the equivalent of probably captain. And the other one, Sturmbannführer, is the equivalent of major. And so relatively high ranking. And the medal I saw was Iron Cross. And with those information, I was like, okay, like this is essentially seeing the life of a Waffen-SS officer. The day after my regression hypnosis, even though I had no desire whatsoever to do any kind of research on does this man exist, I got an urge at some point to just get up and go on my computer. And I typed something on my computer, which actually I still don't remember what I typed the first time because it took me a while to find the page. A few days after when I tried to find this page again, it took me a while. And I ended up on some obscure website where they had a, a scanned page of a book that was talking about the Battle of Kursk in 1943 and they said the 8th of July was a dark day for the regiment because its commander Standartenführer Eugen Kunzmann was killed when his command vehicle was hit by two shots and seeing this name Eugen Kunzmann just I don't know I can't explain the feeling I had when I read this name just blew me away and I searched and I realized that this man was buried as a colonel in the SS rank to be Standartenführer but mm-hmm. he died actually carrying the rank of Sturmbannführer, which is the last rank I saw myself wearing. And he started the war as the previous rank I saw, the one with the three white dots. And there was also a funny twist, like the day I found his name was the 9th of November 2017. And I realized his birth date was 9th of November 1909. So I actually found his name on his birthday, like of his 365 days in the year. And it's the one day I found his name, he's bringing him back to life again. Isn't that interesting, especially when you consider your own birth date as well lines up with D-Day? Yeah. Well, it's, I guess it's a thing in the family because my sister was born on the day that Operation Barbarossa, which was the Germany invasion of Soviet Union, started also. So my father always laughed about this. It's uh, <laughs> the meaning of dates. It never stops. Well, it's interesting how often it happens, though. It's almost like a, yep. one of the synchronicities with regards to reincarnation. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, when it happens so many times, it's no longer, it's no longer random. It's no longer That's coincidence. What I believe, even though I'm, yeah, absolutely. I'm not a big believer in astrology or anything, but I mean, at some point you have to just accept that all these things are happening and they look as almost laser guided. So, I mean, I just went along with it. I guess I wasn't too much in control. Things were happening. It's just I had these urges and I, I did it. And here I was. I, I found the name of Ivan Kunzmann and started a very long story of trying to trace his life, find information, and try to verify what I remembered versus the life that he led. And a lot of information about the day I died actually turned out to be uh, quite accurate, especially since I mentioned the first thing I remembered from my regression was being ordered to stop and face east. And this is actually something that really happened on the 8th of July to the Panzer Regiment of the Totenkopf Division, where essentially the regiment that I was commanding was actually ordered that day to stop their advance around 8.30 and face east to protect the flank because one of the other units that was supposed to be on our flank just couldn't make it fast enough. So there was an open gap. We had to stop. And there was a a counterattack detected because I found the diary of an officer who was in this unit. And he describes not not only how I died, but also like the events that led to it, they had to stop. And then a counterattack was detected. My regiment was tasked with meeting it. And I died because I essentially, I decided to, uh, at some point, we arrived in an area that was unmapped, as in we didn't know what was in front of us. And I decided to go alone with my tank to explore the terrain. And uh, this is how I died. Essentially, I was ambushed by um, probably a unit of uh, anti-tank rifle, anti-tank guns from the Soviets, which were feared. 
much more than their tanks, by the way. And yeah, that, that was it. I know there was two rounds because the man in question, Georg Kinsler, wrote it in his diary. But I am yet to go and find the place and notice if and verify if it, uh, the two shots actually came from the right, because that would be another element of verification. But that's uh, something that happened to Eugen Kunzmann, and which was pretty much like I had to unearth that because even the family of Eugen Kunzmann didn't really know how he died for a lot wow. of reasons. So what happened to the rest of Kunzmann's tank unit? Did they get wiped out or not really, because I found some action reports from five days after, and it's going to sound silly, but as a commander, you're supposed to give updates to your the higher-ups telling them if you're able to do all offensive actions, if you're only able to do defensive actions, or if you're too battered that you need to be taken off the line. And four days after, they were still considered to be uh, available for all offensive actions, which mean, meant they probably didn't have too many losses. I was probably the only one to die that day. I think there was only six dead in the regiment that day, and I was probably the first to die. The, the SS had a lot of uh, officers' death because of that, because it was a unit where you were expected to lead from the front. And uh, obviously, uh, I mean, the Soviets were a tough opponent, so the casualty rates among officers were quite high. I would need to check. I'm not so sure that there was so many regiment commanders that died in combat. It was relatively rare, but officers... By regiment, were... you mean officers of lower rank? In the German army, in general, the officers' uh, losses were higher than in other armies because German officers, especially in the SS, are led from the front. Yeah. But it's even in the SS, having a regiment commander, which is a, a relatively high position, dying in battle is quite rare. So we need to investigate that at some point, see if uh, which is very unlucky. Or well, I think it was it's probably com- mainly, it sounds like it was more his concern for his men. And, you know, he obviously cared a lot. About- I guess you could, yeah, I guess you could say that. I guess mm. you could say that. I mean, that's that's the mindset of an officer. I guess you put yourself on the line for your men, especially mm. in the SS, which was at a, such a very strong, I hope it makes sense in English, esprit de corps, like this uh, corps spirit. You are one within your unit and the mission is sacred, is above anything else. So you, you go above and beyond to accomplish your mission and bring the, the unit forward. And I think particularly in the German army, it would have been incredibly strong because they'd been through the First World War, they'd had to surrender, and they'd, they'd gone through a lot of tough times, didn't they, really, Germany, after First World yeah. War? They were yeah. literally kind of, everyone tried, they were really sort of pushed down, like, you know, we're going to put a lot of hard... Things. Yes, that's actually something I remember quite well, which is, Eugen Kunzmann was born in 1909, and it's still unverified, but I believe that Eugen Kunzmann's father actually fought in the First World War. I mean, you're coming out of the First World War, the country is in ruins, and on top of that, there's a very strong political instability. Rampant inflation, just extremely difficult. So the men, men and women who were forged into that fire, obviously were eager for revenge. And uh, I hold the opinion that the amount of sanctions that was put on the German people after the First World War probably added more fuel to the fire that was burning inside them. I'd agree with that. And I think that's why Hitler actually did get such a strong hold on the German people because he promised yeah, them, I'll make sure. life golden. I'll make life better for you. you know? Yeah. And he, he came as a strong man in an era that was uh, politically very chaotic. I remember earlier in this previous life that essentially my youth was, obviously I was a, a believer. I was a staunchly anti-communist, anti-Bolshevik, as we would say at the time. 
and a lot of like a lot of gang fights between political factions to take control of streets etc and obviously when then you have a man like hitler the nazi party coming all coming in the limelight and saying i want to essentially take germany to its rightful position and let's fight back to get what is owed it's very appealing to those men who were raised in turbulent eras who probably yearn for revenge who dream of the ability to to give payback and then you have the SS, which is politically extreme and very appealing to men who have basically were completely blinded by their, their negative emotions, who just want one thing, which is to have the chance to fight hard to make Germany uh, great as it should be. That's why I'm not surprised. I, I think historically, probably Hitler didn't have 100% support when he came on power, but he definitely had a, a ring of very motivated young people around him, which would end up forming the backbone of his new regime, essentially. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And Kunzman himself, you said that went back into his earlier memories. He exhibited a lot of that, didn't he? That anger and the getting involved in the street yeah. fights. And... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this burning fire, as I would describe it. Just uh, no time for peace in his life. It was Ogan made the decision to get involved politically early on. He was uh, about 21 when he joined the Nazi party in 1930 and 1935. So it's still a bit unclear what he did between those years, but he joined an officer school. Because that's one thing that the SS offered, which was equality of opportunities, regardless of where you came from. Your hard work and your political uh, beliefs were more important than how you were. I guess in the regular Wehrmacht, you would need to be part of a social elite to be able to become an officer. In the SS, it was not the case. If you showed at some point some talent, you would be able to be enrolled into an officer class, officer school, and you could make a career out of it. It's amazing, isn't it? Well, you can see why it was very appealing to people then too, because ordinary people had the chance to become quite powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was the, everything had to be built from scratch. So you had a, an army that was being, I mean, the, what would become the Waffen SS later and during the war at the start was nothing more than just a glorified militia. There was a lot of uh, infighting going on and Eugen ended up joining what was called the SSVT, SS Verfügungstruppe. There was three branch of the armed SS at the time. There was Leibstandarte of Adolf Hitler, which was his bodyguard. Very tall man. You had to be above one meter eighty-one to join. Another part was the SSVT that I remember joining, which was essentially the what would later on become the military arm of the SS, the army part. And then you have the SS TV Totenkopfverband, which were the concentration camp quads. So you had these three branches. Not a lot of men, but uh, being a part of it was a, a huge. I mean, honor. if you were a believer in that, it was a huge honor and a huge opportunity. When you actually started your search and you realized who you were, yeah. you actually then started sort of reaching out towards his family. Is that right? Or Yes. Yes. And that happened by accident because obviously, like every step, I thought it was going to be the last one. So I knew about Eugen Kunzmann. I was like, all right, that's great. Like, I don't want to know more. But I was still verifying a few things. And Eugen Kunzmann was by no means a star, but he was relatively prominent enough that. Today, there are on some forums, there are some pages that talk about him and try to piece some of his information back. And I ended up basically browsing one of these forums one day. And here I am, I finding a message from his grandson. The message was six years old, but he said, I'm trying to find more information about how my grandfather died because we don't really know. And here's my email address that he posted uh, six years ago. And uh, please reach out if you have information. I think you are definitely qualified. Well, I, I just didn't think to twice about it. I just straight away started to write a message and I sent it. It was a Friday afternoon. 
And within 10 minutes, he, re he reached back saying like, okay, your message is very special. I will need to take more time to read it carefully. But I'm with Eugen's son right now, who's still alive, my father. And we're going to take a look. And two or three hours later, he wrote me a long message to say, look, what you say is quite special because no one else really knows like the amount of detail you have about how Eugen apparently died. And at the time, I was still confused about this character, this Georg that I saw. And this is where they told me, well, Eugen had a, a younger brother who was fighting in the same uh, unit. Probably not like he was in the vicinity when Eugen died and he was definitely told about it. And surprisingly, Georg survived the war and uh, went on to have an interesting life after that. And he, he told Eugen's son about how uh, Eugen died relatively like how I describe it. And so that was an interesting, finally, I had this information where well, this man, this seemingly uninteresting man who's not very high ranking, but I was very eager to tell him that I was still around him, was actually my brother. And he was there when I died. So it was a very emotional information. And we, we went on to talk for quite a while. They were extremely kind to send me a lot of pictures. And together, we started to do some research. On uh, We hired actually together an investigator to dig into the, the archives in Germany. And we also had a reunion where we met in Paris. And again, the, the, timing, the timing is funny because I met Tim actually came, Tim Kunzmann came to Paris in May of 2018. So about six months after I reached out to him and I met him, spent the entire day together in Paris. And the next day I was flying to China and it's been three years. I started my new life after saying goodbye to him. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing. It was <laughs> extremely instrumental in, in me, let's say, uh, closing this because I was finally able to tell him uh, a lot of things about what his grandfather was, who Hogan was, the life he led, and I guess to an extent his regrets and the fact that this was a life wasted in many ways. I mean, you 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 can say yes, he fought for his country, but ultimately, I think a, a death on the battlefield is a life wasted. That's uh, something a very strong feeling I have from this life. I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think um, even if you look at a lot of the veterans who come back and are still alive from the war, from the things they said, they realised when they got home that it's hard to say they were lied to. They weren't exactly lied to, but I think they realised that the jingoism and the sense of national pride that took them there really probably was yeah, it's a... not a great move. Yeah, I also appreciate the difference in mindset between then and now. I think today we value peace, uh, even though we can have some uh, hawks in our governments try to push for conflict. But ultimately, I think, especially where I come from in Europe, we know the cost of war. I grew up on a, in France in a village that was on the front line. It was actually the closest point of advance of the Germans towards Paris in the First World War. You could find half-buried trenches in the woods where I grew up. Not to mention that I had a lot of relatives who took part and I was very much aware of the cost of war. So we value that in, in Europe. But at the time, I guess the spirit, the, the mood in the air was of uh, revenge and the fact that a sacrifice for the nation was uh, an extremely um, honorable thing to do. And I guess Germany played that to full extent because it wiped out nearly a whole generation of men, able men, smart men. They, they were sent to the front and most of them didn't come back. I mean, it's six million soldiers mm -hmm. just for Germany alone who died. And I'm not even talking about Soviet Union, whom sadly is sometimes a bit forgotten in the way that uh, how I believe they really uh, fought against Nazi Germany, which was understandably evil. There's no question about that. Nazi mm -hmm. Germany was evil. And the Russians were thrown on the meat grinder to a rate that is just mind-blowing. Like, I, I remember some battles from my memories, which is just astonishing, the things you see in terms of the amount of prisoners we take, the amount of equipment we take, the amount of dead we see on the battlefields. And even when I sometimes look at history books and I look at the figures, it's just absolutely insane. 
Yeah, war is a dirty, inhuman matter that uh, we are yet to get rid of, sadly. Sadly, but hopefully in time, I think people are sort of perhaps starting to understand and maybe that's why we've had such a long period of peace, really. When you look at it, there hasn't been a, a major world war. There's been a lot of conflict. There's no denying that's not stopped. But I think every country through the Second World War that participated paid very dearly for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think it, it kind of did change the mindset for quite a while. But unfortunately, it's starting to kind of revert back a bit, which is a bit of a worry. Yeah, it's ironic to think that what is preventing us from slaughtering each other is the threat of mutual destruction of nuclear weapons. Perhaps you would agree with me or not, but I do believe that history is a big cycle. Mm, As in, I you do. have a generation that never experienced war, but their parents did. They grew up in a certain mindset. And then as generations go on and on and on, they forget the cost of war. They forget that it's ultimately an extremely dear price to pay and a cost that we're probably not willing to pay anymore. But uh, I hope nobody pushes us on that path anymore. No, that's true. That's the thing, isn't it? Well, I've always believed the saying, you know, if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. I think that's very true. Mm -hmm. And actually, interestingly, when I was looking through your notes about the forum that you wrote in, and there was another young girl who had a memory of being a German soldier, and her attitude was very different to yours. You were sort of going, I'm really, you know, peace loving in this world. And I realized now how important peace is. And she seemed to be more still sort of caught up in the whole thing of being a German soldier. Yes, I don't judge anybody's experience. I guess everybody is different. We just happen to go through a relatively similar experience. I can't shake the fact that what I experienced after I died and I was given the gift of remembering that was also very instrumental in understanding how the afterlife shapes your experience. I didn't see a court or a tribunal or any kind like you can hear in some philosophies. But in my case, it was a very purging experience. It strips you of all the hate you, you have accumulated and hate that can be towards other or yourself and brings you back to your very human condition. And eventually, apparently when I was ready, which is not something I decided about myself, I felt a force, feminine force, came and picked me up from that place where I had stayed for so long. There was no happy uh, happy heaven I saw. I, I didn't see any of that. I was just in a very dark place, probably a little bit like the purgatory that is described, a place of suffering, a place of self-reflection. And when that phase was done, I was taken from there. And somebody told me that it was time for me to go back, which I didn't really want, by the way. But it's interesting that you actually do describe it that way, because I've heard about a lot of near-death experiences. I've kind of looked into them a little bit. And it seems to be that what you expect to see on the other side is what you will see. So perhaps because he, Kunzman felt so, reached the other side and realized I've made mistakes and big mistakes in this life, you know, maybe that's Mm. why he felt that. Because it sounds like he did actually kind of, if you had like a feminine force come to you, that's what a lot of people describe in the near-death experiences that other, whatever it is, a soul, an angel, whatever you want to call it, will, will actually not intervene, but will come and be a part of it at some point. Yeah, and there's a lot to say about this feminine force. This is something that I find extremely beautiful that you have this being, a shapeless being that comes and you are surrounded by this feeling that she knows you better than you do. She's very non-judgmental, as in there was some kind of exchange between me and her. And it was never about, oh, you did bad things. It was about what happened happened. Did you reflect on what role you played in that play that was happening down there and now you've been purged and is it she essentially hinted that it was probably the best time for me now to go back and i didn't really want to and i remember that she just acknowledged this thought i had of i don't want to go back and she waved her arm and below us i don't remember what i saw but she showed me a lot of things and she just waved her arm 
and I saw these these scenes, I guess, perhaps the life I was about to leave, but I don't remember what I saw. And it was enough to change my outlook on things, saying that could be actually a very uh, good next step, next experience. And as soon as I was hit by this realization that this was positive, almost like pushed me with one finger and I felt the feeling of falling down a very long distance. Very, very clear feeling of falling down. And like the feeling you have when you jump backwards into a pool, you go into, all of a sudden you are surrounded by a lot of sensations, like your whole body is in contact with the water. That's how it felt. A lot of very physical feelings. And essentially, I think I remember being born because I described what I was seeing to my dad. And he said, well, you're describing like the room you were born in and how the doctor who delivered you was dressed very clear like i remember the walls like the were divided into two sections the lower part of the wall was white the higher part was a uh, pale green and the doctor was wearing some kind of dark green like uniform i guess literally the color of a christmas tree and uh, my father said yeah even like a window on, on the top right and my father said yeah that's the, the room you were born in because i i could also say yeah my father you were actually standing behind my mom to the left side and he said yeah that's exactly how it went the room you were when you were born so it's funny because I don't know when you jump into your body when you're born, but in my case, it hints that I jumped right as uh, I was about to go out of the womb. Yeah. I don't remember everything, but the stream makes sense. Like there is no big break where I don't know what happened in between two scenes. That's the thing. So yeah, it's I, I find it fascinating, to be honest. You know, this whole story has given me such a positive outlook on life, knowing that it's a privilege to be born. Yes. It's a privilege to be born healthy. It's a mm. privilege to be born in a loving family. It's a privilege to be born in peacetime. And it's a privilege to be given the chance to explore the world. And in my case, I have this always had this strong urge to confront myself to different things. You know, I get, get out of the, I wouldn't say comfort zone, but get out of the things I know and face things I don't know yet and learn. That's a, such a privilege. And I embrace it fully. And that probably gave, has given me a very humanist point of view on life, which oddly enough, I had even before I had my past life experience. But I guess it validated everything. I think that's it, isn't it? Maybe this time around, this life is a healing life to help you kind of experience the other side of it, the not being in conflict, the not being someone who's angry. The... Perhaps. I can to distance myself from the idea that we have a purpose in this life. I'm not saying that to be uh, contradictory or anything, but I just feeling like the purpose of life is life itself in many ways. There's yeah. many ways to play the game. Do I need a purpose when I'm here and I experience uh, matter and I experience relationships and I experience uh, happiness and sorrow, but I experience and is as far as I'm concerned, is the purpose of my existence, you know? I know people who have been plagued their whole life trying to find a purpose, trying to find a sense of meaning. And I'm, I'm lucky that actually, if I had a lot of questions and I was looking for a lot of answers, this past life story of mine, this experience taught me that perhaps the right answer is to stop asking the question. Oh, I think that's beautiful. And I think that's very true. It doesn't sound like in your case that you were given a choice with where you were going to go. But for no. most of the time, <laughs> most of the time, the kids do describe that they can have that choice. They can choose yeah. parents. Yeah. And well, it's, it's the funny thing, because like, even though I was strongly encouraged, let's say, by somebody who definitely had a better outlook on the situation, I, in many ways, I never felt forced because I wasn't pushed down this bigger stream to go back in life again, incarnated life. It came the moment this realization came within, like from inside, from deep inside of I embrace this chance and it could be a good thing. And as soon as I felt that, then she, poof, she pushed me pushed very you. gently. Yeah. So that I wasn't being forced. I assume I see people saying sometimes, and I find it sad, but they say, oh, I don't want to reincarnate. 
Um, in many ways, I think your outlook on your perspective on things will be different when you are up there in this place of non-judgment and ultimate peace. But I guess if you don't want to come back right away, I'm pretty sure like it's not going to be forced upon you. I think there is still a, a fair amount of free will up there. I agree with you. I think what actually happens is, I mean, people say, I don't want to come back because my life has been so miserable this time around. But I think when you mm-hmm. get on the other side, as you say, and I've always said, I really believe this. I think there's no greater hell than your own mind. So I think you actually mm-hmm. see things very clearly when you get to the other side. Any kind of beating up, it's going to be you beating yourself up, you know. Basically. Yes, but is it the punishment? I don't think so. I no, think there I are some truly it. evil people in this life. And I can't imagine and I don't want to imagine how it's life I like for them to go back to this disincarnated state when there is no more lies and you can't hide behind lies. But at the same time, I think it's a place of redemption in the broad sense. Healing in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. From your experience from all you've been through, if people say that they either want to or feel that they would like to explore their memories, do you have any suggestions or any advice that you could give anyone? First practical advice I would give is write everything down and try to timestamp it. That's for one thing, because you're going to have a lot of like if you are in the process and those memories are surfacing, especially if they're spontaneous, it's going to happen anytime and it's going to be a lot of small details. It's, it's good to write them down. As for the whole process, let's take it from two different perspectives. Perspective number one is somebody who has memories that are surfacing and they want to go a little bit deeper. I would suggest to get in touch with communities of people who are going through the same thing whether it's Facebook groups, whether it's forums, that's a good thing. Number two would be to maybe try to get in touch with a therapist. What I did in France is I essentially searched therapists using the keyword transpersonal, which are essentially mental health professionals who are open to this idea of there's more than just the materialistic approach to the mental health. Regression is a good tool, but I would use it on a therapeutic approach. I would not use it, oh, I'm curious, I want to know more. My outlook on it is if you don't have memories that are surfacing or you're not bothered by anything, I wouldn't do it because it's only going to bring extra confusion. That's the two things. If you have memories, I think go and, and look for the right people to help you in this journey. The second one is if you don't have memories and you're just curious at the fact that you could have past life memories, I would just say like, just take it easy. There's no pride or virtue to be gained from exploring that. Maybe because my past life, the ones focused in my memories is the dark one. So it was not a pleasant journey. But in any case, you're going to be exposed to strong feelings, which are could very easily shake the foundations of your identity. I think this is something that must be remembered also. Like um, it can be a very life-changing experience, but not necessarily on only positive. I know for me personally, when I was through the thick of it, I quit my job. I just couldn't sleep at night anymore. So it's never random. This is something serious. If you want to learn about reincarnation, I guess the best outlook would be to first look at the published cases. There are some professional researchers and scholars that actually study reincarnation very seriously. It would probably give you more information about reincarnation than just trying to go into your own little story and try to extrapolate from that. It's a serious subject and it should be taken seriously. This is not a party trick where you do hypnosis regression in the bathroom while your friends are waiting on the other side of the door. I think that's very, very good advice, actually, because when you think about it, the whole system is set up so that we don't remember really generally. And it's yeah. only people who have what I would call almost a form of PTSD. I really honestly feel it's that's what's happening. It's when people have no closure from the past. I'm lucky that I was in an environment where I was able to express those memories within my family and friends. And I was able to find the right support network 
to carry me through it. Mm -hmm. By myself, I wouldn't have done it. The same way that somebody who witnessed a horrific event, if they don't have a support system around them, it's very unlikely that they will be able to get back on their feet. I think that your use of the PTSD term is, is very appropriate because me and others I know who have past life memories on the traumatic uh, kind, they suffer greatly from it. And it's in a way, it's unfair because both the victims and the perpetrators seem to suffer from the same spectrum of uh, ailments. It's definitely something that can carry over, whether it's purely the emotions from this previous life or it's more complex and it's actually your subconscious reflection on those events that's bringing you PTSD in this life. I'm not so sure, but it definitely can affect you, which is why I always encourage people like go talk to a professional if that's something you're going through. I know that one of the main reasons I'm always eager to talk about my story is because I want my testimony to be out there that you can go through horrific things and still live relatively stable and peaceful life after if you manage to, let's say, frame this story correctly and integrate it into your identity in a correct way. It's, it's a process and some people will be able to help you and don't hesitate to reach out to support networks, whether it's forums, groups and, and therapists. I really encourage it. Yeah, I think that is actually really good advice. I think, as they say, no man is an island. And when you're dealing with something like this, it's extremely difficult, especially that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast is I want it to yes. be more of a conversation because I think it's really important that people feel they can talk about reincarnation without being mocked or put down. It is a serious subject. It's really my approach to things. I'm a serious and dedicated person when it comes to this. I like to go to the bottom of things and take it from an open mind, but also with a, a sharp eye on trying to do this the right way. This is a serious subject. We have cases from people all walks of life, all continents, all social classes, unrelated to the beliefs of the family you grow into. My personal belief is that everybody reincarnates, but for reasons that we don't understand, not everybody remembers, which is probably a good thing but it's a fundamental for me uh, aspect of the human experience as in you are now seeing the work of art that is life from one perspective and maybe tomorrow you will be on the other side of the work of art to see different shades of colors different emotions i think the human experience is fascinating and i respect it even more knowing that we are just here and now and we were before in other places and other times and we were playing a different role in this big play that is life Yes, I agree with you. And I actually think too that it's um, when you hear cases, particularly like yours, where it is a dark life that you remember, most people won't speak about their dark lives as if they're a little ashamed of them. But I think it's really important to talk about them because I think it gives you get a sense of hope that, okay, last life might not have been what you wanted it to be. And maybe you did make some horrendous mistakes. You may have made huge mistakes. But the next life, there's always that possibility to redeem and have a happy life. So when people mm -hmm. say in the forums, oh, I don't want to come back because my life's been so crap this time. And, you know, I keep saying to them, well, you know, you don't know that it's going to be the way it's going to be next time. You know, life has a way of changing. Yeah. It never stays the same. So I think it's a hopeful thing. I agree. And if I may add something to something that you say that triggered a thought in my head, I think also when you talk about people doing evil things, and I'm not trying to absolve Eugen Kunzmann of the thing he has done, which are undoubtedly wrong, but it also gave me an interesting insight into how human minds can be manipulated to join the war machine. The same way you had Nazi Germany with unspeakable things, the same way you had Japan, Imperial Japan, that also did unspeakable things through its soldiers, through its administration. It gave me a very strong insight inside and a, a very strong free mind today to understand that as a group, as a society, we can be manipulated towards drifting away from what is, I believe, human nature, which is to be compassionate and to build bridges. 
it's a very deep thing. You know, it gave me a very um, open mind. I live in China today and I sometimes speak to people who have very strong nationalistic view. But once you scrape that off, you realize that most of it is taught and is learned and is not inherent to the human nature. I think it's also like seeing those cases of people who did wrong and allowing them including me, to speak about it and speak about this process of how Eugen Kunzmann went from... I mean, Eugen Kunzmann's father owned a toy shop. How does a man who owns a toy shop gives birth to three boys who all joined the SS, whose eldest, Eugen Kunzmann, who I was, ends up being a man who leads a unit of former concentration camp guards because that was his unit at the end of his life. A man who has a death's head on his forehead, on his uniform, and ends up dying in a random field in Russia. Like, how do you go from there, from growing up in a toy shop to this <laughs> life? And there's so many happening in between. And I think it's interesting to listen to those who have memories of intimate knowledge of what it takes to build a murderer, essentially. I think this is a, a good lesson to be, it's at least a lesson worth listening to. I, I'm not asking you to feel compassion for the people who do evil things. This is sad, but this the process itself is interesting and it needs to be heard, I think. When you actually look at it though, Ben, if we talk about good and evil, it's hard to really define what is good and evil because one man's good is another man's evil. You know, mm -hmm. like from the British side, we were taught that the Nazis were bad, that Germany was bad, you know, and that Japan was bad all of that sort of business but then when you come out the other side of the war and you realize that everybody is just trying to get through the day it's, it's funny because you say that but it, i remember in nazi germany you, we were taught that we were actually the we were the iron wall that was going to protect human civilization from the bolsheviks and we were going to be some kind of elevated race that was going to bring peace and stability to uh, some grand grand order of races where obviously Germany's on top. That's what we were told. But anyway, one man's lies is another man's uh, truth. That is why I'm always wary of strong nationalism these days. You can be a patriot. I completely get it. I'm a patriot as well. But mm. it doesn't mean you like there is no better be or worse. Or, mm. Be true to yourself. That's the thing, isn't it? it we, we all are very swayed. If you look at especially at the news and things that happens today, it's very easy to become swayed and to follow the view that you're being told. When in actual yeah. fact, that might not be necessarily the truth. I'm not agitating for anybody to you know, rise sure. up and defeat sure. the government. but Sure, me too. I'm not also advocating any kind of, <laughs> any kind Just... of uh, rebellion or anything. But I, I think it brings a lot of clarity to be able to understand that what you hold for the right approach can be fundamentally wrong if you looked at the problem from the other side. It does. I mean, of course, there are some things which are just plain wrong. Everybody agrees on that. But human nature in itself and the various cultures on this planet that have evolved, sometimes in parallel, sometimes on collision courses. And today they make up this big mosaic of different experiences that we need to embrace all of them because they're all valid. They all exist. With your description of when you shot the young man, the, the mm -hmm. partisan, you make an interesting point, and that is that you didn't actually even really think about it. It was just a logistical no. problem that you had to yeah. deal with. It was a big loss of time, just plain yeah. annoying. Like, and, and the idea in my mind was, why doesn't he just like go along with it? Like, crying won't make it any faster. Digging slowly won't make it any better. It's just like it has to be done. And the only time in my memories where I felt discomfort, I'm sorry, it's a bit shocking. Are you okay if I share that? Yeah, no, that's fine. There was a, a prisoner that was uh, executing prisoners, especially in the SS, was something that was done relatively often. I will give you two anecdotes. One of them is we actually had a group of Soviet prisoners and we wanted them to dig a ditch, a trench, whatever, 
like they were used for labor and we gave those guys shovels and i think they thought we were giving like we we were like amused by the situation because they all look absolutely beaten down yeah and they probably thought we were asking them to dig their graves and in reality no we just wanted them to dig trenches and we thought the whole situation was hilarious Another one that was a prisoner that for, I can't remember why, but he was essentially to be put to death and some soldiers decided to burn him essentially. So he's on the floor and he's pretty much unresponsive. He's traumatized and he's doused in petrol and we light him on fire. And me seeing that actually made me feel very uneasy. I thought the whole thing was very unnecessary. It could have been done cleanly and fast and etc. with just a bullet. And again, you have this very dehumanized mindset where, oh, like it needs to be done, you do it, but just don't overdo it, just do it like clinically. Clean, one shot, thing is done, you don't need to set somebody on fire. The, the whole experience of seeing a man burn to death was very distressing because it, it's a gruesome process. Terrible it's gruesome. Death. If you look at a serial killer, a serial killer yeah. has no one telling him you must do this, and yet he mm. still goes out and does it because of possibly what's happened to him in his life you never, or, or yeah. her life. Uh, that This idea of psychopath in general, not just psycho, uh, serial killers. I, I hold the belief, and I don't know if it's true, that there's so many ways to be uh, sociopathic. And uh, I've met people, they just don't function the same way that we do, very self-centered and they cannot relate to other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. And it always puzzles me, how can you be so distant from what I believe is the human experience? Sadly, something I see a lot in China, which is why I rescue a lot of dogs here in China, is uh, seeing people who hurt animals. It blows my mind. How can you not relate to this thing that is defenseless? We are not talking about political violence. In a way, what the SS did was very much a product of indoctrination that they received for many, many years, especially the younger ones who were raised in this environment. But when you're hurting somebody for free, literally for free, like uh, in the village where I grew up, we realized one kid was basically torturing stray cats and we were all puzzled like why there's no why there's no obvious reason you know he's, he's not profiting from it in any way but he, he still does it and as a community what do we do like it's it is just beyond the range of comprehension of a normal constituted human being i don't know i have no answer to that and i wonder what the experience is once they die that's actually one of the first signs of serial killers actually they usually hurt yeah. animals light fires yeah. wet the bed they're through they call it the triumvirate or the trilogy or something but it's mm-hmm. the the three things that there's actually one observation i could make from when i was on the battlefield already dead and i can't explain why but some of the people i was seeing it's like they were blacked out like they had no face they were just an empty shell there were like no traits no face just like a human shape and they were there and they were obviously fighting, but I have no answer. I can only speculate, so it's going to be my person. But have those people be been barred from the human experience because of who they were and what they did? I do not know. But it's it's something I have. I'm just telling it to you as anecdote. Not everybody appeared the same when I was using Kanet. Some of them were just as if they had been wiped from existence and all was left was their shell. I don't know if that makes sense to you. That's how I saw it, yeah. So they were, what, like a kind of almost like a silhouette rather than being... A silhouette? Well, they had a helmet on, they had a uniform on, but they appeared as just like a black, like no face, literally no face, completely just a shape. And I, I can't explain it. Maybe there was something in you that sensed something different in them as people and that you Perhaps. actually, because if you think about near-death experiences where they say the experience that you experience is the one that you expect to see, perhaps you, because of your own life, had been quite difficult. Perhaps you yeah. actually saw those people and perhaps either recognized traits in them yeah. or, I don't know, it's yeah. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's yeah. the thing with reincarnation. You answer one question and you get three more. 
I'm going to be honest with you. I, I live my life like I'm just sailing my boat. I'm, I'm not asking myself too many questions about this. Otherwise, I might go into another rabbit hole. But it's a, it, it is a fascinating subject, and which is why I value a lot the work that some of the leading researchers such as Jim Matlock do, because they take the time and they devote the energy into trying to map the wide variety of reincarnation experiences and try to bring um, main trends from a lot of different experiences, which is fascinating because uh, if I just relied on my story, I would have only one side of the of the answer and the, the amount of questions I would have would just be endless, absolutely endless. <laughs> well, I think that's the thing, isn't it? I think Jim found his own fascination in it and just realized he it did. was something that he had a passion for and he decided did. this was what he wanted to do for the rest of his life. And I'm very grateful to people like him because I was actually wandering in the wilderness a bit before I found signs of reincarnation because I'm not really someone who approaches reincarnation from a spiritual standpoint. Mm-hmm. I find that For me, I don't really handle organized religion very well. I can't work on just faith. And the spiritualist idea of reincarnation to me feels very much like religion and has that same level of I must have faith in this. And I'm like, I can't work that way. So I'm very grateful to Jim because he gave us a forum where we could hear wonderful cases like yours. Yeah, well, not just me. I think it's a fantastic platform. As far as I'm concerned, this is exactly the the way I like to approach things. The danger of trying to approach the idea of reincarnation purely from, as you say, almost like an organized religion is that you're going to be leaving out a lot of experiences if they don't fit with the mindset that you have which is, Mm -hmm. I think, a big mistake. I know it it caused a little friction sometimes with some people when I say that I hold a nearly mechanical view of reincarnation as this this is just the way life works. And it might not indicate that one has a a life plan or anything. It could be, uh, I'm not against this idea. It's just that I view reincarnation as just one fact of life, just the same way that we are born and we grow older. And if we're lucky, we grow old and we pass away and then we move on to a different plane of existence and then we come back. And for me, it's almost mechanical. And I mean, I do not say that in the way that I want to undermine the beautiful, and I'm glad we talked about this today, the beautiful aspects, philosophical or even spiritual aspects of knowing that life ultimately, I believe, is a a positive experience. Yeah, it's a Mm -hmm. positive experience. It's one that offers redemption, one that does not cast away those who were led astray. I think this is a beautiful aspect. But in many ways, I, I see it as not something that needs to be explained from a religion point of view, more like a, almost like a sociological way as it like oh but this is the human experience and everybody goes through it and that's just the way it is and it's uh embrace it because it's part of life exactly like i often think it i find it quite fascinating that people see what we talk about as being spiritual when you look at birth and death itself we're not we don't really consider them to be a religious procedure it's just Mm -hmm. a part of our life cycle and to me Mm -hmm. that's what reincarnation is i think it just we have this interesting life cycle where we spend half of it in a conscious form and half of it in a physical form me personally, it gives me a lot of joy every day knowing that the ones who are positive forces in my life who are older, maybe next time around they'll be younger and they will be the student and I will be the teacher. Whereas today I am the student and they are the teacher. And I find it beautiful that it's just a very big, large human community and we all have a part to play in it. Me too. I think one of the wonderful things that I love from reincarnation is that true realization that we are all the same, that we are all mm-hmm. one species really that i mean it doesn't matter where we come from what we do who we are we're all the same and we all feel the same things and we all experience the same things you know 
Absolutely. And that's, I can just make a very clear parallel to my experiences when I travel. I mean, I've been living in a country that is of where the culture is very different from the one I'm used to, obviously being in China now. But like, it just scrapes the thin layer of culture and we're all the same. We all uh, love with our kids. We all love our family. We all need private time. We all, like, we're all the same. And that's why I, uh, the, I think somebody who believes in reincarnation cannot be a racist because it makes no sense whatsoever to view different even skin colors as uh, any meaningful way to divide people. I think we're, the common denominator is we are human and that's the end of it. Yeah, that's my view of it too. Jeff Keen mm-hmm. always says reincarnation makes you raceless. And I've said that to a few Absolutely. people and seen them do a bit of a double take till they realize that what he's actually saying is that there is no race, that we all are the same Absolutely. one beautiful soul, Absolutely. really, in a way. Well, we're all Absolutely. unique, but... Yeah, but then again, like, I guess you will never find two trees who are similar, but all in all, like, they are all the Both one trees. big part of the forest, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. I love that. That's exactly the right. That's exactly the way to see it. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, Marilyn. I thank you again for this wonderful experience. I, I hope you had as much pleasure interviewing me as I had uh, discussing with you about this oh, uh, very dark, but uh, sometimes the darkest stories shine the, the brightest light. It's been completely amazing and I'm so grateful to you for talking to me about your life because to have someone come forward and actually to tell a German life is very difficult because people feel still feel that they're going to be not appreciated yeah. for it. And I think yeah. it's really important to realise that it's just a part of life that no one race, no one human is ultimately evil, that it's just the things we went through. I think it will teach a story of forgiveness. And I say that coming from my current family where I have D-Day veterans, my great uncle French was a POW in the German camp. My grandfather was a, in France was a resistance. So I know both sides of this and ultimately should be a story of forgiveness and remembering how we got to that situation where half of Europe was tearing itself apart. And uh, on the grand scheme of things, I hope it teaches a story of uh, life is ultimately uh, an experience of redemption. Yes, I hope so too. Otherwise, you wonder why you have to go through all that pain of it. But hopefully, I think people will take the positive message that we can all be our best selves. And I think if there is a life lesson to be learned, I think it's that. Just go through your days trying to be peaceful, trying to be loving, trying to be kind. Well, at least let's credit the, all the major readers for saying, be peaceful to your neighbor. That's the main message we should receive from that as well. <laughs> exactly. That one religious message I'm happy to embrace. It's good that it appears in nearly every religion I've ever like laid my eyes on. So <laughs> They're getting certainly that part of it completely right, and I agree with oh, you. That's right. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. This has been amazing. It's my pleasure, Marilyn. We'll leave Ben's account there for now, but he'll be back with us next episode as there was one part that I forgot to discuss with him in this session, and so I've contacted him again, and he very kindly agreed to fill in some blanks. I really love this episode. I think it's one of my favourites, not because of the subject matter as such, but because of its message of hope and forgiveness. Benjamin really is a remarkable man who now lives a life of kindness and compassion. He's very thoughtful, intelligent, and demonstrates great care and concern for the people around him. His story is proof that no matter how dark or hard life gets, or how far we descend, there is always a pathway back to our higher selves. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. 
If you'd like to support me, I'd be honoured if you'd become a Patreon supporter. You can find me on Patreon under Reincarnation PLR. I don't do extra content, but your support helps me to keep pumping out content faster and lets me keep on doing what I hope you love hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. <laughs>